turn with me to John's Gospel in the very last verse in chapter 8. John 7, I'm sorry, not the last verse, verse 8, the last one, verse 7. John 7 and verse 53. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And everyone went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Let us pray together. Father, we rejoice that we are gathered before you. We rejoice that you have given us faith in our hearts to come before you, to worship, a desire to hear your word. We pray, O God, that as we now come to that period of time when your word is open and preached, that you would take what is foolish to men and magnify your name. Lord, we are all simple and sinners, but you magnify yourself when you enter in by your word and spirit to speak to our hearts, to rebuke, to correct, to instruct, to train in righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would do so in our midst by the powerful working of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you uh, look at your bullet, your Bibles, you... uh, you will see that there's some indication that this is bracketed or there's a flag, a footnote, and it's labeled as not in the NU, or that's the designation the Bible scholars use for the critical text, which is the Greek text that has been compiled uh, using all the various manuscripts. So you might ask the question, why am I preaching this text? Well, Indeed, much has been written on on this question as to whether John wrote this portion of the scripture. The oldest manuscripts do not contain it, and yet some 900 reliable manuscripts do. There are facts that indicate that it should be in the scripture. The way that Christ is portrayed here is entirely consistent with how he's portrayed elsewhere in the scriptures. Jesus is entirely in character in this account. 
We've already seen some of this, uh, some of this uh, of his character on display when he meets with a woman at Sychar, uh, later when he, uh, earlier when he had met with the man in the middle of the night. Luke records Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, and here I think we see the same tender mercy on display with the prodigal daughter. The other men are in character character as well. The Pharisees behave with that same lack of compassion as they did when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. They had no concern for him, but strained at the scruples of the keeping of the law, their law. Papias was one of John's disciples. Uh, We have writings of him that are still present, they survived. And he was familiar with this account. And he also expounded it, that is to say that he preached from it, one of John's disciples. Augustine comments about those who have removed the text because they feared that women would appeal to it as an excuse for their own adultery. Surely, such ones as that did not understand the teaching of the text. One last thing. Each of the I am statements in John's gospel is preceded by an event, a narrative of something that takes place that gives a context for the I am. We're not considering the I am that I've read, verse 12, this week. We will do so next week. But we're looking at this narrative that's connected to it. What we see in this passage takes place in the temple and particularly in the court of the women. The encounter that we consider this morning explains how Jesus came to be there. Uh, we hear from the context how he was, had gone to the temple and he was teaching there. And then we find that they bring the woman. Well, enough said on this point. I believe that the story recorded here really took place. And there is nothing in it that is in conflict with the rest of Scripture. As a matter of fact, this encounter reveals the grace of God for sinners in Christ Jesus. We're going to use five main points. The trap, the dilemma, Jesus' response, the cross, and then finally, no condemnation. We begin with the trap. You heard again from the text how at the end of the day, the eighth day, uh, the eighth day of the festival of the booze, uh, that everyone went to his own house. People had finished packing up their equipment and their gear, and they had gone home, and we're told by John that Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. It was there near at hand, a short walk away from the city. And then early in the following morning, Jesus returned to the temple and resumed what he had been doing, teaching. And the people came to him as he taught. But then there was another group. The scribes come. The forthright manner in which this woman's sin is reported in the Bible oftentimes makes us comfortable. There are a number of counts that are very direct. I remember when I was preaching from Judges in my earlier passage, and I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel, and, and King Agag is preserved by Saul, and he's brought before Samuel, and Saul is rebuked by Samuel, and then Samuel takes up a, a sword and hacks Agag to pieces. Such language can make us uncomfortable. What about Pharaoh's command to drown all the Jewish baby boys in the River Nile, or King Herod's slaughter of all the male children two years old and under in the region of Bethlehem, or the rape of Tamar by her half-brother. Very direct passages. We find such a one here. You might be thinking that the sin in this passage that is so evil is the sin of the woman caught in adultery, and you would be wrong. 
There's a greater sin in this text than even that. Her sin, adultery, is a great evil. One of the commandments, the seventh commandment, very specifically speaks to that thou shalt not commit adultery. But it is primarily a sin of weakness. The greater evil here is that these powerful religious men hated the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. They hated him so much that they would destroy this woman through their own conniving in order to attack and to destroy him. And there's lessons for us in that. His teaching, that is Jesus' teaching, was exposing the lies of these false teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees. As the light of the world, Jesus was exposing those who walked in darkness. He came cast in the light of truth, and it made certainly these men uncomfortable. Last week we heard how these officers, the officers that had been sent by the chief priest and the Pharisees, had failed to arrest Jesus. They had returned empty-handed. And they were challenged, why had they come empty-handed? They said, no man ever spake as this man. And so these Pharisees conceived an evil trap, a trap so well thought out that it seemed as though that they would even catch this wise rabbi who was and is the Son of God, the living word. The Jews had set up layers upon layers of laws and regulations about God's law. We've seen that in other passages. I'm sure that when you went through the gospel according to Luke that Tony showed how these same men would take one of God's law and put many, many, many additions on it. And so it was in this. They had regulations and procedures of how all, even this situation that's before them, this woman caught in adultery, how such matters had to be handled. And so we find that this woman had been set up in their conspiracy and determination to get Jesus. In Leviticus Leviticus 20, Moses had given the law that an adulterer was to be put to death by stoning. And as God said through Moses, so that the evil might be purged from amongst his people. Well, these Jews had added legal rules that required... And there's these, these rules of the Pharisees that error, they've survived too. In those rules, they required that the couple had to be caught in the actual physical act in the very movements of adultery by two witnesses at the same time so that their testimony would be precisely the same. There's an account that's been preserved from this era uh, when a woman was acquitted from the sin of adultery because the two witnesses could not agree what type of tree it took place under. You see the the layers upon layers, the specifications of these men. When the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman to Jesus, we remember from the text, we are told that she was caught, verse 4, she was caught in the very act of adultery. So witnesses had to be in place already. It's pretty clear that this had been arranged, that a man was appointed to seduce her in order to use her for this ultimate end, to discredit Jesus, the Son of God. What you see here is a very man-centered system of religious leaders where women often suffered, and the result is that women despised the religious leaders of their day. I said earlier that the greater sin was that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They took the law of God and they weaponized it. I know that's a modern term, but you can relate to that. They took the law of God and weaponized it for their own 
wicked ends. In this case, they weaponized the law of God to destroy the word of God, the lawgiver who spoke through Moses in ages of old. Look again at John 8, verse 4. Then they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be, put, or should be stoned. But what do you say? There's an expectation and anticipation that he will respond in some other manner. But they really didn't need to ask the question. They didn't need to bring up what the law said about stoning. It was very clear. And so we wonder, why did they do it? Well, verse 6, but they said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. There's their motive. John's recorded it. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we find what it is that they were up to, what they were after. Why didn't the Pharisees stop and seize, stop the act before it happened? If they had the witnesses present, they knew it was going to happen, as even they had orchestrated. Why didn't they prevent it? Why did they instigate it? You see so much of the evil that was in these men's hearts. They were right there. And if they were so eager to uphold the law of God, why didn't they help the sinners rather than let the act go forward? so that they could use it. We see, again, the greatness of their evil deed. It's a wonder that, is it any wonder, that later in this chapter, in verse 44, Jesus says, you are the father, you are of your father, the devil. You see that right here. So when we come to that in a few weeks, remember this account. Jesus isn't just making up something out of thin air. There's, there's a history, there's a pattern, there's a, a presentation of a conduct that represents their heart that these men, the religious leaders of the people of that day, were of their father, the devil. In Zechariah 3, there's an account of Satan standing before the throne of God, and there's the high priest Joshua, and he's standing, and his garments are filthy, and Satan is accusing Joshua, the high priest of God. Remember what the high priest does. He stood between God and man. He was the one responsible to go into the temple on the Day of Atonement and to bring a sacrifice for his sins as well as the sin of the people. He was a guilty man, and he represented the people before God, even as he brought the sacrifice to atone to God. And you see something here, the nature of Satan. Even as the high priest is being faithful to do what God has appointed, Satan is there to accuse, to find fault, to harass, to condemn. And you see that same Saying echoed here with the Pharisees. Satan and these men had no concern for righteousness. They had no concern for righteousness. No, they only used the law of God to accuse the people and excuse themselves as they lived by a double standard. I want to make an application here. Children, I want you to pay close attention to me here. We can fall into the same trap of these religious leaders. Children, I want you to understand, you can get caught up in this. Uh, Your parents are listening. They'll be able to get it, but I want you children to understand it. Sometimes you see your sister or brother do something, and you are eager to rush to your mother and father because you want them to get in trouble and be punished. You want to look better than they did. You want to go away feeling, well, it wasn't me. And under your breath, what you should say is, this time. You see, the sinfulness of these men lurks in our hearts, even in the heart of a child. 
Satan is very happy when he sees children or adults act in this manner. Full of self-righteousness, pointing the finger, wanting others to be punished, wanting others to suffer. My friends, that is sinful. And it is not a mark of someone saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's very easy for us to read this passage and condemn these scribes and the Pharisees. And yes, they were wrong. But there are times when we do no better than they did. And we need to understand that. Well, here's the trap, and now we're going to consider the dilemma. Be clear about this. This trap is very clever. It seems to be airtight. It's as though they've got him. They have put their best minds together. This is quite a trap. They laid it for Jesus. They looked as though they had found a way to trip him up and bring shame upon him in the eyes of the people. But more than anything, even as John records, they wanted to find fault with him. Him who is faultless. Him who is without sin. He who is the Son of God. They wanted to find fault with him. Again, that's not anything exclusive to them. There are those today who find fault to God. Sometimes we complain about circumstances. We, we deal with the commandments often enough. We know it's breaking the 10th commandment. We're, we're discontent. We want it to be different. We want a different outcome, and we're finding fault with God when we do that. You see, this passage is very close to us. Like many of you, I'm familiar with this passage, and, and I'm mindful of some of the lessons, but even in preparing it, it was brought much closer to home. And feel the piercing of the sword of the Spirit. So what is Jesus of Nazareth supposed to do? What's he supposed to do in this situation? Is he supposed to just turn to everyone and say, you know, let's just all forgive her. Let's be gracious. You know, let's just let grace cover a multitude of sin and preach grace, but sweep the law under the rug? Well, there are certainly those that do that today, even as it's been down through the ages. But God's law, remember what we heard in Romans seven twelve: God's law is holy and just and good. It is altogether righteous. And God is holy. He hates sin. He hates the sin of adultery. The sin of adultery destroys marriages. It wreaks havoc in, in families. It leaves scars on individuals that they will bury, bear the rest of their lives. Even if God's grace in Christ provides forgiveness for their sin, this is a heinous sin. So if Jesus sets aside the demands of the law, he'd have no credibility. All that he's taught, would suddenly he'd be a, the laughing stock of Israel. Jesus could have condemned the woman. But that would have been out of step with his preaching on grace. For indeed he came as the Lord of grace. John Calvin explains that the scribes and the Pharisees, quote, intention was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace so that he might appear fickled and unsteady, close quote. Can you imagine Jesus calling on the two witnesses to pick up stones? For that is what God's law required. You know, those two are the witnesses. They were to be the first to pick up the stones. They present this dilemma. And so Jesus turns to the two witnesses that are present and say, go ahead and throw them at the woman and then we'll all join in. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? No. Not one of us can. I'll ask you as a sinner, if that had been what Jesus' response was on this occasion... As a sinner, how quick would you be to run to him? Would you be ready to run to such a savior 
you can see the maniacal and devious and diabolical intentions of these men. Indeed, their father is Satan. Those are the very sorts of things that he seeks to do all the time. Now, we would say, if he had done that, there's no help or hope found for sinners with such a one as this. British theologian A.W. Pink explains the dilemma this way. The problem presented to Christ by his enemies was no mere local one. So far as human reason can perceive, it was the profoundest moral problem that could ever confront God himself. The problem was how justice and mercy can be harmonized. How can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice bars her way? How can grace flow forth except by slighting holiness? Close quote. How does God punish guilty sinners without destroying them, without destroying you or me? And at the same time, preserve his justice and display his holiness. How does God do that? You know the answer. It's found in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's found in the cross of the Christ of the cross. There we see righteousness and holiness. There we see God's satisfaction. And that's tied into Jesus' response as we now consider verse 6, the second half, and on through 8. We see Jesus' response. He doesn't say anything. John records something of a parenthetical. He stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Surely he heard them. He heard their accusations. But he stoops down and he begins to write. Indeed, what Jesus did and what he was was going to say in a moment is most remarkable. Here's the trap. Here's the dilemma. It's around him. And how Jesus handles it is It's brilliant. If Jesus were a mere man, these religious leaders would have had him. Honestly, there's there's no other that could have handled this situation but the Lord of glory, the God of grace, the God-man who came into the world to save sinners. We really say there's no escaping the trap. Even as we must consider, there's no way we can escape our sins. There's no way we can escape the wrath of God that we justly deserve but for Christ, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus write on the ground? I can guarantee you the commentators have speculated all over the place for ages. You know what I tell you? The Holy Spirit didn't want us to know because it's not here. So let's not waste our time with speculating. If it was necessary for, to know, for us to know what they wrote, John would have written it. John was present. John would have seen it. But the Holy Spirit constrained him not to write it. Part of Jesus' response, though, was his very presence, his being there. Some one commentators pointed out that Jesus stooped down. So that this woman who is so uncomfortable, and all the eyes are focused on her, the accusations are hurled at her, Jesus stoops down so he doesn't look at her. Could you imagine the gaze, the perfect Son of God, upon this woman in that moment? Jesus stoops down. Every one of these sinful men were in the presence of the Holy God. Though we understand that his humanity veiled his deity, Jesus Christ is none other than a son of God. God is in their midst. God is there. The lawgiver, the creator, the sustainer, the Lord of glory is there. That is the reality. He who was truly holy, harmless, and undefiled. 
whose conduct with every beat of his heart in that situation was perfection. It's hard to imagine what that must have been like. Even as the Pharisees, with their devious plans, set it out, you must imagine that they must have been uncomfortable as Jesus says nothing. We're told in a moment that they continue to speak, but Jesus stoops. Remember that Jesus was one that even the people, the ordinary people recognized as being remarkable. He spoke as one having authority. And I'm convinced that the Pharisees and the chief priests, the Levites, the scribes, they recognized that too. When they heard him speak, there was something remarkable about his manner and his words. Verse 7, his accusers continued to speak, no doubt demanding his reply. Again, we could speculate about what they said. We won't. It's not here. But then in verse 7, we find that Jesus arose. He stood up erect, and then he spoke. And when Jesus speaks, he did not set aside the law or its demand for death. He said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. That's what the law required. His law. The law of God. With these words, the trap was diffused. And the accusers were silenced. By his words, Jesus exposed the hearts of these men. He showed that they were not fit to execute the law of God. That law that moments ago they were so eager to carry out. These evil men had murder in their hearts. Not really for her. The murder that burned in their hearts was for Christ. That's who they wanted to destroy. And indeed, even after this episode, when Jesus outwits them, dare I say, with one arm tied behind his back, they're, they're no match for him, yet they still are determined to murder him. And in a matter of months, they will be shouting and leading the people to shout, crucify him. But here we find them when pressed with an infinitely smaller matter than murder, the offense of this woman that they were using to promote themselves and triumph over him, they had to walk away. But him who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. They had to walk away. Verse 9, we're told that those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, actually that's quite stunning, that they still had a conscience. What I imagine is their conscience was very seared, but in that moment the Holy Spirit, who can operate upon anyone at any time, prevailed upon them. And they walked away. Their conscience pricked them. They went away. Isn't it interesting? One by one, beginning with the oldest. The oldest, who perhaps were silent when they had, should have spoken up. They begin and they went away. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verse 5. Here's what God said through Moses. Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed the wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. See what Jesus said is completely consistent with what he spoke through Moses. 
Let he who is without sin. But you see, in that situation, uh, what's envisioned as God is giving that law to Moses is that witnesses have encountered a sin. They've not connived. They've not planned. They've not orchestrated to set a situation up. But indeed, they've discovered a sin, and they're witnesses to the sin, and indeed, they needed to obey God. And though they were not sinless, yet they could righteously carry out the commandment of God. But these men... You cannot reach the bar. Jesus raised the bar very high, as he always does. He moved away. He moved the matter from the procedural to the moral and from the form to the substance. Are you without sin? Are you without guilt? And their conscience pricked them, and they walked away. Many people in our day talk about what they will say to God when they get to heaven. You've probably heard them. I know when, when I was in the workplace, these sort of matters would come out God and the Bible and death and dying, and people had all kinds of things to say about it. They said, when I get to heaven, i got a thing or two I want to say to God. No, no. You, if you're apart from Christ, will be on your face crying for the mountains to fall on you. And these men, when they were confronted with the God-man, suddenly had nothing to say. There's a little bit of a glimpse of the way it will be in that great day of judgment. Christ in his righteousness and justice speaks, and they were guilty, and they knew it. And they went away. They had conspired together to create this situation from the beginning. And so it is the old graybeards left. And once they had left, no young man had the presumption to remain. And they too walked away. We still see sinful men draw back and even fall back when confronted with the great I am. As we move closer and closer to Jesus' suffering, there will be those who shrink back and even fall back. This event, in this teaching, it does not mean that the humans cannot prosecute evil men and carry out the judgment of God that is disturbed, deserved. Again, listen to John Calvin on that topic. Christ is not forbidding men, quote, to do their duty in correcting the sins of others. Indeed, what parent then could do what God has charged them to do? He's not forbidding that. Going on with Calvin, but by his words, he only reproves hypocrites who mildly flatter themselves in their vices, but are excessively severe and even act the part of felons in censuring others, close quote. When I was a father with young children, there were times when I had disciplined a child in anger. You could say I was the felon. And I was not doing it with the right heart. It was, it was hypocrisy rather than grace to recover a sinful child. And God had convicted me of that many, many, many times that I had then turned to a child and say, I have to ask you to forgive me. I sinned in my heart in the way that I was going about this. Would you forgive me? And they always did. But then to go ahead and address the problem, to move ahead. You see, it's very important as parents that our heart be right when we're correcting our children. Many, many times where a child had acted up and I was angry and I said, go to your room, I'll be in there in a minute because I needed to go in my room to get with the Lord that my heart would be right, that I would deal with a child in a godly and a righteous manner because as parents, we represent, particularly to very small children, we represent God to them. And who is sufficient for such things? And these men are the religious leaders. They're our elders. They were the elders of the church of that day. And yet, they behaved in this way. But nonetheless, God has appointed men to carry out his justice in the world. An application, again, children, I want you to listen to me. Apply this. Your, your parents will be able to connect this and apply it for themselves. You children, all of you are little sinners. 
and you sin many times every day. It is a bad thing to see your sister or brother sin and for you to celebrate it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see your sister or brother sinning and that you would celebrate their sinfulness. And then you want to try to get them punished for it. Certainly there are times when your parents must punish you and your siblings for sins that you commit. What Jesus condemns is when you are eager and even happy to see others in trouble. Even as you lie to protect yourself from your part. It's one of those complicated things, isn't it, parents? The altercation goes down in the other room. They're screaming, hollering, wailing, off in tears. And you didn't see it. And you come in and you try to find what happened. And every child goes to his own corner, determined to cover himself and stay out of trouble. It's a very important time, children. We need to be mindful that the Lord sees all. That you be forthright and honest and own what you did. Own what you did. Confess what you did. And it's certainly not a time to gloat over what falls on another. We should cry over our sins. We should cry over our sins more than we cry over the sins of others. We should cry over the sins of others. Indeed, we should. But we should cry over our own sins more. That's the mark of a true convert, a convert to Christ. Is that we're grieved over our sins when they come to light. We all need Jesus. We need his salvation from sin. Even if someone must be punished, we must still be ready to forgive them when they come to us. Isn't this what we prayed for earlier in our worship service? Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. We pray that every week, children. And I'm addressing you. Your parents are listening. But children, I hope that every week when we pray that, you will remember that. And even remember this sermon. And you reflect on your conduct in the last week, and that maybe there are things that you need to confess to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. You see, all of this reminds us of our need of a Savior. It points us to Christ. And if we're hidden in Christ, it gives us cause for great joy that we have a great Savior who has saved us. Well, fifthly, or fourthly, the cross. The cross where righteousness and peace kiss. Jesus teaches us that our goal should be redemption of sinners through the grace of God. That should be our goal, not the punishment. We must never treat people as instruments to advance ourselves or to make ourselves look better. What we see in this text is Jesus caring for the sinful woman. And he's the only one that is doing so. He cares for her. He is tender. We have seen repeatedly in John's account, beginning with the man who came by night, to the woman at the well, to the father of the dying son, to the man lying paralyzed by the pool of Bethsaida, that Jesus cares about people. He's tender-hearted. He's compassionate. And yet, they are sinful people. And they deserve the justice and the wrath of God. He knows what's in the heart of man. Again, we heard in John chapter 2. And yet he cares for them. He cares for us. It would be correct for us to think of this woman being terrified. She's been enticed. Witnesses suddenly step behind the curtains or wherever they were lurking. They seize her from the bed, leaving the man behind. They drug her out into the public in a disheveled manner, disarray. They roughly treat her. They drag her to the temple, to the court of the women. Because they were so righteous, they wouldn't go beyond that. Even that, seeking to keep the law, straining the gnats, swallowing the camel. And then they thrust her before this rabbi, 
Perhaps she's heard him. Perhaps she's seen him. But they're demanding that she be stoned. Jesus knows we're but of the dust of the earth. He knows our frame. He knows that we are sinners in rebellion against his father, even against him, for he too is God. And yet he came to the earth full of compassion, ready to lay down his life to save us. What a savior. What a savior. So Jesus stood up once more and spoke again, verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? He's been stooped down as these self-righteous men have been pricked in their conscience and walked away. He stands up, and she's there alone with him. You can imagine her, her reply must have been tense. Everyone else has left. Remember, it's a remarkable thing to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though his deity is veiled from them. There had to be an intensity and an aurora, something about him that was stunning, particularly in a situation like this. She's still alone with Jesus. This is the one man that remains. Will he condemn her? She does not know. But no, Jesus speaks grace. Jesus speaks grace. Verse 11, neither do I condemn you. Well, she answers, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, how do we get there? The law is still the law. She's guilty. How can Jesus say to her, neither do I condemn you? She's guilty. How can that happen? Look at Exodus 34. In verse 6. And the Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And it keeps going. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There's quite a mixture in that, isn't it? Forgiveness, grace, uh, abounding goodness, truth, and mercy, and yet by no means clearing the guilty. How can God announce himself in that way? Because when God met with Moses, it was already a predetermined thing from before the foundation of the earth that Christ would be crucified. How is it that Abraham, with his faults that we saw when we were in Genesis, and Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob, how could these men, Judah... How could these men be forgiven? Christ is yet to come. It's because Christ would come. It was a certainty they would come. And by faith they believed the promise of God concerning Christ, and it was accounted unto them as righteousness. How could Jesus baptize the woman at the well with the Holy Spirit? For indeed that's what's necessary to have the heart of stone taken out and to receive a heart of flesh. How could he do that? Because he was going to the cross. Even as all those who had been saved at that point by him because what he was about to do, this woman, it's not written here, but read between the lines. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, the reason that Jesus could say that with righteousness, justice, and truth is because he baptized her with the Holy Spirit. Just like 
the woman at the well, the man who came from Capernaum, and the man paralyzed for 38 years. The Holy Spirit moves and blows where he will. Jesus sent him forth into this woman's heart, and she believes. She looks to Christ as a Savior, and now she's under Christ. Her sins are forgiven. They are washed away. She is no longer guilty. That's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus announces it to her even before she fully comprehends it all. Jesus speaks grace. She's forgiven. Because of the cross, God can forgive guilty sinners. It's at the cross that justice and mercy meet. You see, Jesus avoided the trap. And he also saved the woman. He could have done the first without the latter. He could have avoided the trap. He could have just said, to the Pharisees and the scribes, and they show up, well, take her to the Sanhedrin. That's why you have the Sanhedrin. Let them adjudicate it. Push it off under those that sort of, sort of had the lawful position to do that. And he would have escaped the whole dilemma. And the woman would have died. But that's not Jesus' way. Jesus disarmed the trap, and he set the woman free indeed. For he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus loves God's law. He is the one who sings Psalm 119, every verse from the heart with absolute truth. He is the man of Psalm 1 who meditates upon the law of God day and night. He loves the law of God, but he also loves sinners and all those whom the Father had given to him. And this woman was such a one whom the Father gave to Jesus, and he saved her. He baptized her with the Holy Spirit. Even as John announced, the one who comes after me will have the power to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. Let's go back to the Old Testament again. Psalm 85 in verse 10. I could just read it to you, but I think it's helpful for you to see it. Maybe you want to remember this verse. Psalm 85 verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Some of you will be familiar with the passage. What we hear... From the psalmist, the sons of Korah, who wrote these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have just seen how it happened there in John chapter 8. Jesus willingly took this woman in her sins. He took her to himself and her, his, her sins upon himself so that she is forgiven. Her sins are going to be punished. But he's going to bear the punishment. You see, by no means will God acquit the guilty. But the guilt that this woman received, she was acquitted because Christ bore the guilt. He endured the wrath, even as he has done for those of us who believe in him. She's a new creature with a new heart. She has much to learn. The Holy Spirit's within her now. The power of God is at work in her so that Jesus can say to her, go and sin no more. That's not a statement of go and be sinless. He says, go and stop sinning. Start growing in holiness. Walk in sanctification. Put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. And indeed, it's not just a, a moralistic command that a Pharisee might give. The Son of God can say that to her because he has given her the Holy Spirit, even as he calls us to walk in holiness and keep his commandments because he's given us the Holy Spirit who indeed enables us to do so. Remember the thief on the cross? When you compare the gospel accounts at one point, both of the thieves, one on the left and one on the right, they are reviling the Savior. But then one of them, I looked again this week, and I don't know if it's the left or the right. Maybe I missed one of the accounts. But one of them says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus baptized one of the thieves on the cross. Even as he was bearing the thief's 
sins and the punishment for them. What does Jesus say to you? He speaks forgiveness, not because you are innocent. No, you are guilty. Jesus knows your guilt even better than you know it yourself. And Jesus, nor God, winks at your sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He bore it on the cross. The Lamb of God who came into the world to take away the sin of the world. This is beautiful good news. The good news, the message, the gospel of grace, righteousness, and peace, kiss. They have peace, kissed at the cross. And so we've finished finally with no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, again, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Back to Zechariah, I've made reference to this. It's a remarkable passage. These little minor prophets hide in there, don't they? Zechariah 3 and verse 1. Zechariah sees an image in heaven. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That would be Christ. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him or accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. It's a picture of sin, unrighteousness. And he was standing before the angel. Then he who answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put on clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by him. You see here a a transaction that is a reality because of the completed work of Christ. Satan, even today, wants to keep you far from God. You're born again. You have a new heart. You're a child of God. But when you sin, Satan wants you to just wallow in it. And we need to remember that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, even as saved sinners, we save. But Christ, our high priest, ever lives to make intercession for us. He cries out, Father, forgive them, forgive them. He makes intercession for us. So that Paul can write those remarkable words in Romans 8 after that remarkable chapter of Romans 7. There is now therefore no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you feel trapped in a sin this morning. You're a child of God but you've got in deep with a sin and you're wallowing in it. You feel guilty. Satan is quick to point out your shame. Come to Jesus. Jesus went to the cross so that you could come. Righteousness. Peace and righteousness have kissed together. He can set you free, beloved, from this sin. He's already done so on the cross outside of Jerusalem. It is finished, Jesus announced. It is finished. My fellow Christians, here there's an application for us. Jesus has set us free from the power and the penalty of sin. And so he says to us, go and sin no more. It's not a command of sinlessness. It's a, sin, it's a command to sin less and be sinning less and less. Each time you encounter temptation, the power of God is available to you to overcome. We don't need to sin. We have the Holy Spirit in us so that we can escape in the hour of temptation or trial. Some of you know others that are trapped in sin. 
You know, folks who feel ashamed and guilty, share this message of hope and salvation with them. Point them to Christ, that they would be encouraged to flee to him. It's in Jesus Christ that we have righteousness and peace. God has caused them to kiss. I'm going to close with a Martin Luther quote. I'm sure that uh, one of our elders will appreciate that. Martin Luther said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you and praise you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we trust that we have mined it for biblical truth. Father, we trust that it is your word and profitable. We have found great profit in it. Lord, encourage those that are downcast. Lord, work in our children that they should learn to look to Christ and not to their own righteousness. Lord, may we all flee to your blessed Son. For in him we have forgiveness and we are accepted in the beloved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.